This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy, and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers, or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. I do have something to say. Oh, okay. What do you what do you have to say, Mogam? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I have to say is everyone needs to quit acting like me saying share was in clue <laughs> didn't make sense. Clueless. Clueless. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> clue okay. is another amazing movie. Oh. <laughs> stop it. Okay. Now everything I have to say is irrelevant. to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Also, I do have to give one shout-out today. What's your to- shout-out? my new dental hygienist who as I'm laid out in the chair and he's got all of his hands up in my grill, he looks at me and he says, Hey, you going to McDonald's after this? And I was like, uh, what? And he's like, yeah, it's 25 cent cheeseburgers today. And I never like felt more seen by my dental hygienist. Oh, good for her. I love feeling like understood. See, like you, you would think it was a dude. My dental hygienist is Jake. I, you said, 
uh, her and I said I, you would think but he's I am a dude. so I am so bad about that I I have such a huge gender bias like from years right. of programming it's right. bad and and it gets pointed out a, like well I, I pointed out to myself a lot we do this activity it's really awesome and it lists like here's 30 people and it says things like 35 year old rape victim or it'll say like 500 pound billionaire and it's funny because there's no genders on it and it's talking about like our perceived bias and identity and stuff every time they think the 500 pound billionaire is a dude uh-huh. they think the rape That's victim is thinking. a woman yep. every time yep. they think the doctor is a guy yep. it's just so funny because then at the very end why did you assume it was a dude and they're like because it says you know and they get the paper and it like doesn't say it on the paper and they like flip out uh-huh. it's crazy uh-huh yeah i no because when you said we don't put any genders on there. I immediately was like, wait, then how come I already knew there was a woman and the billionaire was a man? Like, already. Yeah. I mean, it's a real it's thing. So, it's so hard to untrain yourself. It is. Oh, man, we got deep. Straight up. Straight up deep. The amount of people that have asked me what we're talking about today, and I'm like, I really don't know. And you don't know. Yeah, I didn't really tell you no. anything about this one. So last week when we were talking, you brought up how – like every week we do our intro and I say like we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists and you're like we haven't done a serial killer yet. <laughs> I feel like we're lying yeah. to the people. And we're lying to the people. Yeah. Oh, is this when you told me about a black widow and then I talked about the Ariana Grande song? Yes. And how you've <laughs> never heard of a black widow. So I usually pick my cases week by week. Like I tried to like plan out the cases I was going to do and I would finish one and then I'd be like, okay, next up is this case. And I'd start reading about it and I'm like, ugh, I don't want to do this one every single time. Mm. Like I, I'm never into it. It has to call to you, you know? And so it, a serial killer, like serial killers haven't spoken to me yet, you know? And I yeah. I I probably won't ever do the biggies like Dahmer or Ted Bundy, which is the only serial killer that you know. <laughs> Ted Bundy, because uh-huh. I didn't know that other guy. No, yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer. Which even Russell's like, you don't know who that is, and I was. Like, I honestly oh. love that about you because I think those guys are way too famous, and they all. <laughs> yeah, suck. you're not getting free fame from me, buddy. <laughs> and I wanted to find a story that was more interesting than like loser guy who hit his head when he was young, peed the bed, set some fires and was cruel to animals, ended up going around and killing a bunch of people. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> who is that? Every serial killer ever. Oh, I almost peed the bed last night because I drank a gallon of water. Okay, you don't know the McDonald triad? Why am I asking you? So is that the I know the McDonald's Monopoly game scam? No, the McDonald triad is a theory that like animal cruel, like there's three things, animal cruelty, fire setting, and bedwetting in childhood indicates later like violent, aggressive behaviors oh God, in adults. Having kids. So if you have like those three things, or a lot of t- even just like two of them can be a very strong indicator, but all three, it's like ding, 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 serial killer, like somebody locked this guy up. <laughs> nope, never having babies. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. 
Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Okay, Mogab, I'm, I'm, I say this every week, but every week. I know, I was just about to say, are you so excited to tell me about? Yes, I'm, I, I am so excited. I say that every week, but every week I love whatever story I'm telling you. You're like excited in a non-creepy way to talk about I don't, something really sad. I don't really know if it's that non-creepy, to be honest. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's fine. I think I'm kind of a creep sometimes, but it's a great story. Mm-hmm. Today, I am telling you the story of Belle Gunness. And I've heard her name pronounced a couple of times, Guinness, uh, but I'm going to go with Gunness. That's what I think it is. Belle was a true success story. Like she was able to overcome the struggles of being a woman immigrating to the U.S. on her own in the late 1800s. And living with the beast in that castle. Uh, (laughs) By the end of the story, you might be asking yourself, who's the beast, really? Oh, no. Well, I guess you already know who I'm picturing. (laughs) You're going to need to get rid of that image real quick because she managed to make a very comfortable life for herself by employing such tactics as arson, insurance fraud, and lots of good old-fashioned murder. Oh, And many people, including me, think she got away with all of it. All right. I don't have an opinion yet. Mm, No, you don't. And I'm excited to hear your (laughs) opinion. I read a book for this episode called Hell's Princess, the mystery. When did you have time to read a book? Look, it's been a very busy week. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's why I had three days to edit the Brittany Murphy episode. (laughs) It was called Hell's Princess, the mystery of Belle Gunness, butcher of men. Hell's Princess. Was that her first like aim screen name? Probably. I mean, this is the, you know, 1800s, but. Oh, (laughs) a woman ahead of her time. A woman far ahead of her time. It was March 1907, and old Budsberg was reading the personal ads in the newspaper when he saw one that would change his life. It read, Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with a view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless seller is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Oh, my God. That's one about to be my Instagram bio. Mm -hmm. Triflers need not apply. So basically, she's like, I don't want no scrubs. Uh Uh-huh. Is what it sounds like. Yes, ma'am. She's just out. Also, personal ads, I forget that that's a thing. But one of my all-time favorite songs, as you know, Escape, the song. If you like peeing, oh sure, it's called Escape. You, 
It's yeah, one thousand percent it. called if you like pina coladas. Well, it's actually called Escape in parentheses pina coladas. <laughs> but um, I love that song. And when I actually listened to it, I was like, oh, this is like a back and forth of personal ads. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever uh-huh. like actually listened to it. I was like, oh, dang. Triflers need not apply. I'm going to tweet that right now. Please do. Well, Old Budsberg was no trifler, and he was looking for a change in his life. He was a 51-year-old widower with two grown sons, and this looked like a great opportunity. He wrote to the woman who had placed the ad, a widow herself named Belle Gunnis. They wrote back and forth for a while until Ole was convinced. He told his sons that he was making a trip to Laporte to see about managing a farm there, but he told his brother that he was going to marry a wealthy widow. He returned a week later to his home in Wisconsin and sold his farm to his son, Matthias, for $1,000, which is about $28,000 today. Dang. On April 5th, with the cash from the sale plus a mortgage note for an additional thousand, thousand old-timey dollars, he got on a train oh, and told his sons he'd write as soon as he could. On April... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just want to go somewhere and be, and be told how much something costs me. Like, okay, but like, what is that in old-timey dollars? <laughs> like today when I was at the dentist and they're like, okay... It'll be 345 Okay, but like, what is that in old timey dollars? Right, $4. Okay, <laughs> okay great, yeah. <laughs> On April 16th, he and Bell Gunnis went to the bank together to pick up the cash from the mortgage note, and that was the last time anyone saw old Budsberg alive. Oh, dang. This is heating up quick. Mm-hmm. So who was this Bell Gunnis? She was born on November 22nd, 1859 in Selbu, Norway, as, and I probably will get this wrong because it's Norwegian, but her name at birth was Brynhild Pulsdotter Storset. I saw a couple of places say that she was like the daughter of a magician or she was part of a traveling circus or something, but that's all urban legends, rumors that got spread after Belle's death. She actually grew up in a pretty poor household and went to work on a farm when she was young, but she wanted more for her life. And so she immigrated to America when she was 21, where she struck out to seek her fortune amidst the purple mountains majesty and the amber waves of grain. I love that song. Mm, It's a good one. Brynhild's older sister, Nellie, had come to America years before. She'd gotten married and was doing pretty well for herself. So she paid for Brynhild to come out to Chicago to live with her and her husband. And upon arriving, like most other immigrants, Brynhild Storset rechristened herself with the name Bella Peterson. She'd later drop the A, make it a Bell. She was still Bella, I think, like formally. But when she moved, everybody called her Bell. She went by Bell. She told people her name Bella. was Bell. As an unmarried immigrant, she had basically two choices when she got to America, factory work or domestic work. She chose the domestic, doing laundry, serving, and cleaning, not exactly the fortune that she was after. So she set her eyes on the prize, a rich man. Oh, yeah. A few years after arriving in Chicago, she met Mads Albert Sorensen, who was the night watchman at a, de- at a department store. Not exactly wealthy, but he had enough money to live comfortably in a nice house. What's a night watchman? Is that a security yeah, guard? Yeah, that's what I assume, that it's like the security guard at, like the, yeah, at night at the department store. But mm. I don't know why in the late 1800s they would need like overnight security at this department store. But oh, because they're in Chicago. <laughs> oh, that's why. I like that term, though, like the Waffle House third shift, the Waffle Night Watchman. Ooh, 
They were married in 1884 when Bella was around 24. I kid you not, she wore a black wedding dress. Very on brand. Not a lot's known about their first 10 years of their marriage, but I did find a few things that were really interesting. First was that she loved children and she wanted them very badly, and that she especially had a place in her heart for the orphaned or abandoned children, which is going to seem so weird, even a bit sinister later on. Like she was very close with her niece, Olga, and she went to her sister, Nellie, and actually demanded that Nellie let her adopt Olga. Like, she was like, just give me your daughter. I'm going to demand we don't record any more of these without flowcharts. <laughs> After your reaction to my last huh. flowchart, you will be very lucky if you ever get another flowchart. So when Nellie obviously said, no way, you can't just have my daughter, Belle hardly spoke to her again. Wait, sorry. Why did she want the daughter again? Because she just wanted just her. Oh. She liked her a lot. She was very close with her. So she wanted her to be hers. Belle and Mads had these neighbor friends of theirs, the Olsons. Mrs. Olson got really... The Olson twins? Again, late 1800s. Oh, shit. Mrs. Olson got really sick and couldn't take care of her baby Jenny anymore. And so she gave her to Belle to take care of. Belle was ecstatic. Her dreams of a child had finally come true. So years later, when Jenny's father tried to regain custody of Jenny, Belle... Bella... <laughs> Bella fought him in Bell fought him in court and won. So from then on, Jenny was always with Bell. So in 1884, Mads and Bell opened a candy shop in Chicago at the corner of Grand Avenue and Edward Street. It was a great location, and Bell and Mads had really high hopes for their new little shop. But it quickly began to fail. All the money that they had saved to open it was just slipping through their fingers. Just when it seemed like they were going to lose everything, their luck shifted. Less than a year after they opened the shop, a fire broke out. The only people in the shop at the time were Belle and Jenny, who was three years old at the time. But when the insurance investigators came, Belle told them a kerosene lamp had exploded. They didn't find any evidence to support that. There was no broken glass, no destroyed lamp, nothing. Oh, my gosh. So she set it on fire? Oh, yeah. Oh, she definitely set it on fire. But apparently in 1884, insurance companies just couldn't wait to pay out policies because they ponied up the cash and Mads and Bell were able to use it to buy a decent house in the Burbs. The Burbs. I guess that makes sense because you said it wasn't doing well. It's not like they torched a very successful. Right. They're about to lose everything. Yeah. They're about to like go yeah. bankrupt. I'm picturing Honey Dukes from Harry Potter. Wouldn't that be nice? I actually think they kept, everybody called it a candy shop. But the one article I read that actually described it, or maybe it was in the book, it was it was more like a convenience store that sold candy, like every other convenience store. Because they were like, they sold this, they sold that, and they sold a bunch of candy. And I'm like, okay, so it was a convenience store. It wasn't a candy shop, but every other place called it a candy shop. So hmm. it was not Honeydukes. Over the next two years, four more children came into their home. Caroline, Myrtle... Axel and Lucy. Oh, I love all of those names. I know, aren't they great? It's Myrtle. I, I know, little Myrtle. It's highly debated whether Belle just had them back to back to back, but she was in her late 30s, and most people agree it's more likely that they were adopted. There's another theory that's way, way worse that we'll get into that later. That they're stolen? Wait, so we don't, it didn't say whether they were actually hers? No, nobody knows where they came from. But <laughs> there's a lot of evidence. I'll just go ahead and say it now. They're not stray cats. They're kids. Right. They're, 
there's a lot of evidence later on that because there was this whole thing going on at this time where women, especially very young women or girls even that had babies that didn't want them or couldn't afford to keep them would pay somebody to care for the kids until they could find a proper home to adopt them. And some of these places were legit, you know, they would really care for the babies, but most of them were just using it as like a baby farm. So anyways, I'm pretty sure that these are kids that she took from women telling them that she would find them homes. But she didn't because the one thing we do know, we might not know where the kids came from, but what's absolutely not disputed is that two of them were dead before they turned six months old. Oh, my God. Caroline was five months and Axel was three months old when they died. But infant mortality rate was like one in 10 at the time, which is so crazy to me. But it didn't even raise an eyebrow when two infants died in her home. Their cause of death were listed as an acute inflammation of the bowels and hydrocephalus, which is a fluid in the brain. How do you get that? I don't know. Belle and Mads' money troubles continued to follow them. Mads fell victim to a scam of the get-rich-quick variety, which nearly cost them their house. And after that, Mads went back to work at the department store and Belle to the domestic chores she'd been doing before. It seemed like there would be no way out of that menial work for either of them. Until Tuesday, (laughs) April 10th, 1900, (laughs) when a fire broke out in their home, reportedly caused by a broken heating apparatus. Oh, yeah, another broken apparatus. Another fire. Firefighters were able to save the building, but there'd been a lot of damage done to their personal property. Luckily for the Sorensons, all of it was insured. After, like, don't insurance companies eventually say, like, we won't cover you? Like, I mean, I don't know if that's, like, a newer thing, but, like... And I bet she had a different insurance, you know, on her business than she did on her home. Right. But that's the last fire that she had, so maybe they did. Maybe it was, like, a one-time each, and she was going to use them both. With the luck they kept having, it was just no wonder they had insurance policies on just about everything, including Mad's life. At the time that their house burned down, he was covered by a $2,000 policy, which is like 60 grand in today's money. And he decided to let Mm -hmm. that one like run out. He was going to get a new policy. So he was just going to let the the $2,000 policy run out. And he purchased a higher policy for $3,000. And I just have to wonder whose idea that was. But there was one day, one single day, that both policies overlapped. (gasps) And oh my gosh, don't. The first policy would expire on Harry Potter's birthday, July 30th. And the second policy came into effect that same day. On the one day that both policies were covering him, Mad Sorensen died of a cerebral hemorrhage, sometimes also referred to as my crazy wife killed me. Belle. Girl. And you gotta stop. (laughs) Oh, she's just beginning. (laughs) No. I'm sorry. Like, (laughs) triflers need not apply. (laughs) And because he died on that day, she collected both policies, which adjusted for inflation, is over $150,000. Is that old-timey money? $150,000 in today's money. It was a $2,000 and a $3,000 policy. Okay. Well, I'm just mad that, like, you're talking about insurance and all this, and every time something, like, adulty comes up in life, I'm like, that would have been a great thing for me to learn, and, oh, I don't know any of the, like, 
16 years I spent in schools. Right. Yeah. No kidding. Like, how did I not take one class on, like, the stock market? Or, like... The stock market? How did I not take one class on how to buy a car, how to buy a house? Right. How not to end up in so much student loan debt? Right. How to file my taxes? Every time I have to file my taxes, I'm up here, double fingers crossed, like, hope I did this right. (laughs) I mean... There is a TikTok for that. And when I find it, I'm going to send it to you. Oh, boy. Anyways, she used the money to buy a farm in LaPorte, Indiana. And in November 1901, she moved there with her three remaining children. Hold on. Jenny, get a pen and a sticky. Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy. And she started going by Belle. Who was Jenny? I don't remember Jenny. Jenny's the she one that the she adopted trial? from the that she fought the dad in court and won. Jenny Olson. I'm going to make me a little guess who board here. All right. We got Jenny Olson, Myrtle, and Lucy. Okay. Three. And she started going by Belle instead of Bella with her neighbors in Laporte. A few months after moving to the farm, she married Peter Gunnis and became Belle Gunnis, the name that has gone down in infamy. Peter Gunnis had actually been a boarder of hers and Mads in Chicago, and he'd also been an immigrant from Norway. Now he was a widower with two daughters, and he was described as being a fine-looking Viking of a man, while Belle was described as having a coarse and mannish figure. But her new farm must have been sexy as hell. <laughs> On the farm, there, were th- there was a 13-room brick house surrounded by a grove of trees. They had lots of animals, cows, horses, chickens, bulls, and they grew a lot of crops. But tragedy continued to follow Belle in her new life in Laporte. With her Indiana Viking. (laughs) Five days after they were married, Peter's seven-month-old daughter died with edema of the lungs given as the official cause of death. Okay, but you didn't give me their names. I don't know um, Peter's daughter's name. She was buried by the other infants that had died in Belle's care. Eight months later, tragedy struck again. A doctor was called to the farm to find Belle sobbing in the kitchen and a dead Peter Gunnis, her husband, lying face down in the parlor wearing a nightshirt. Mm. The county coroner, Dr. Bowell, could tell Bowell. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you feel like when your last name is Bowell, you were just born to be a coroner? A coroner or like a... A gastro. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's that called? A gastro Mm -hmm. and... Gastroenterologist. Oh my gosh, Brooke's gonna come for me. <laughs> Gastroenterologist. That's the word I was looking for. Yes, the county coroner, Doctor Doctor Bowell, could tell immediately. <laughs> he could tell immediately that Peter had been murdered. <gasps> the first clue was probably like the giant bloody wound in the back of his head. Oh. But Belle told the doctor that Peter had come into the kitchen to grab his shoes before bed, and a meat grinder had just oopsie. Fallen off a shelf and landed on his head. Um, okay. One, I didn't know that people just kept those as a kitchen appliance. Two. They did in the 1800s when they didn't have a grocery store, but yeah. And it hit him on the back of the head. It just fell and smashed his little mm-hmm. noggin Little noggin in. right there. Uh-huh. Yep. This woman's sounding a lot like Marjorie. <laughs> oh, my God. They've got to be distantly related. Yeah, don't do that, 23andMe. Dr. Bowell, amazingly, saw a bunch of holes and issues with this story. So as he performed the autopsy, he really hoped to clear up some of these things. But instead, it just seemed to prove to him that she was lying. It couldn't have happened the way that she said. So he held an inquest on December 18th, 1902, 
at the farm in the parlor where Peter died. He interrogated Belle for quite some time. And I I looked into this because I was like, why is this county coroner like leading this investigation? And apparently inquests can be led by a judge, a jury, or a government official. So I guess the county coroner would count as that. Anyways, Belle said she put her kids to bed and she went into the kitchen to stuff sausages. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Thank God I don't live in the 1800s. I swear to God. (laughs) She then washed the meat grinder and told Peter it was time to go to bed. He went into the kitchen to get his shoes and she heard a terrible noise. She ran into the kitchen and saw that like this big bowl of brine that she'd had on the stove had fallen on him and burned him. I don't know why she came up with that part of the story. But anyways, that's not really. Yeah, his clothes were all wet. So she told him to take off his clothes and she said that she would treat his head wound. She told him that he should probably sleep downstairs and she went and got his nightshirt. And she says she sat downstairs with him for a couple of hours. And then he started complaining about his head hurting really bad. And that's when she sent her daughter to go to the neighbors to get the doctor. Belle said that Peter said, I guess I'm going to die. But Dr. Powell was seeing Belle's story for the crock that it was. He knew by Mm -hmm. the stiffness of Peter's body that he'd been dead for some time before he got there. There was no way Belle was just sitting up with him for hours. Right. And that it had happened moments before he walked in. Like on his commute. Right. Over. Right. Dr. Powell asked her if his nose had been bleeding and she said no. But the autopsy showed that his nose had been broken and very bloody. He asked if she'd seen burns on him from the brine spilling, and she said yes, that he'd been blistered all over his neck. But the autopsy showed no burn marks, which is why I don't understand this whole story with the brine. Yeah, like, did he see burn marks? No, the the doctor didn't. So why not just go with the meat grinder? Why are you adding in this bowl of brine? Anyways, he asked how he got the wound on the back of his head, and she said that she saw the meat grinder on the floor and just assumed that it had fallen and hit him. He asked her if they always lived happily together, Belle and Peter. And she said, shrugging, as far as I know. (laughs) Man, she's got a lot of good one-liners. She really does. Also, like, how high is the shelf the meat grinder's on? I kind of picture it, like, above the... Way the hell up here? Yeah. And she could reach that to, like, put it back up there? I don't know. It just seems suspicious. Oh, you're so right. I guess she would have to get a ladder. Yeah, you're so right. Because it would be very heavy. Weird. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Jenny Olson, who at this point was 12 years old, she told pretty much the same story as Belle. But Dr. Bell just wasn't buying it. He wondered how Belle could have sat with him for two hours and never discussed the actual cause of the injuries, like the giant gash on the back of his head. How did Peter not tell her in all that time yeah, a meat grinder fell on my head. And how could she not? Yeah, that's the first thing I'm asking. Like, what did you do to cause such a mess in my kitchen? Right. Like, oh, my God, what happened? Oh, yeah, or that too. a meat grinder fell on my head. <laughs> um, And how could she not notice his broken and bloody nose? Dr. Bowell was starting to think that not only had she killed Peter, but he suspected that she might actually be a black widow, the type of female serial killer who murders her partners for their money. I didn't know that was like a term. I know. That shocks me. I love teaching you these things, though. My favorite part of the Oh, I thought it also shocked you it was a term. It shocked you that I didn't know. Yeah, it shocked you that I caught it. Yes. Dr. Bowell wanted to check if Peter had a life insurance policy or a will naming Bell as the beneficiary 
or if he'd brought. Oh, sure enough, you know she did. <laughs> Absolutely. Or if he'd brought any money with him when he moved to Laporte. At the funeral, Belle was putting on a show. She was moaning with her hands like covering her face, but her neighbor saw that she was actually peering through her fingers. <laughs> She's like peeking? Yes, like looking around at everyone mm. to see like if she was having an effect on anyone, you know. How she gotten away with so much so quick when she's so bad at it? <laughs> I know. I know. That's the biggest thing. Cuz rumors were spreading all over that Bell had killed Peter because people aren't stupid. At least some of the time. But this is the craziest part of of this part of the story. For whatever reason, Dr. Bowell wrote in his official findings that Peter died by a falling meat grinder. All these coroners on the payroll are getting on my nerves. I have no idea what caused him to change his mind so abruptly. But I do. She threatened him. Or gave him money. I don't think she threatened him. I think he would have like just been like, okay, well, you killed somebody. So and I know that you killed somebody. How do you threaten? Right. Somebody? And then she's like, then I'm gonna kill you. I think she would have just done it. I, I think he would have gone and been like, there's this crazy lady. She killed her husband. And now she's saying she's gonna kill me. Can somebody arrest her and throw her in jail, please? I She must have paid him off. I don't know. Something definitely fishy was up because his line of questioning when he was questioning Belle and Jenny and all that, he show, it showed that he obviously knew something was up. And she didn't answer any of those questions, like, really well. But before anyone knew it, the case was closed and the death was ruled accidental. But little Myr- Myrtle Sorensen, who was five... I was just about to say, what about Lucy and Myrtle? <laughs> she was five years old when Peter died. She told a friend a couple of years later at school, My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. <gasps> Oh, my gosh. I love – you know what that is? Five years old? That's a kindergartner. They say the best uh-huh. stuff. Well, she and was five honest. She was five when he died, but it was a couple of years right. later when she told her friend that. And rumor has it that she told her friend this a week before Myrtle herself was killed. <gasps> shut up. Mm-hmm. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I know. That's it. Belle. Mm-hmm. I could handle – the husbands. I mean, I really can't. I'm not okay with that. But Myrtle, little sweet baby little Myrtle. Bur- little Myrtle. Little Myrtle, the Myrtle Turtle. Myrtle. A few months after oh. Peter died, an infant named Philip mysteriously showed up at her farm. This is the craziest thing. No. Okay. A midwife showed up to help deliver the baby. I'm like, did she think she was pregnant? I don't understand this whole story. Only to find that the baby was already born, bathed, and dressed. All where no, they're not just like storks flying over this house, dropping babies, <laughs> dropping babies for her to just. But Belle was what, again it, the it, talk of the town, and who's the father? It, why isn't anyone at like the local grocery store, church, whatever, being like, "Oh, there's that murder this woman with another baby"? No, maybe we should intervene. No kidding. This is not. You know what I think? Texas. You know why I think? Because she's a woman. Okay, it was a few months after Peter died, so I guess people just assumed that it was Peter. Strike Myrtle from the records. Yeah, so well, all not we have yet. Is Jenny she's still Olson. alive right now. Myrtle died at this point in the story. She's still alive. You just told me she. Yeah, that's several years from now. She told her friend hey, that I'm several kidding. years later. Yeah, and then you said, and then she ended up dead. Yeah, several years later, but we're not several years later in the story yet. Okay, we you haven't just told jumped me she with died. Myrtle yet. Spoiler alert. 
Okay. I just wanted you to know that she said that a week before she died, you know, dun, dun, dun. She's still, she's still kicking right now. All right. I wrote her name back down. Okay. Philip, Lucy, Jenny Myrtle. Yeah. And Jenny is with an IE, by the way. I feel like that's important <sighs> to know. Yeah. Cause I already it's wrote with a Y. y. Uh, she's the only one without a Y. I should have said that earlier. You're right. I should have just made you a this flow chart, my but you would have hated it. Yeah. <gasps> Yours is 1000% worse than mine. <laughs> I know because I wasn't anticipating having to do that. Love charts are hard. Belle was know. again the talk of the town with people saying that the baby looked far too old to be a newborn, but said that she just must have adopted this one too. <sighs> Later, those rumors would become far more nefarious. Mm. So without Peter around, Belle started taking care of the farm entirely by herself. She did everything and it was really hard work. By 1904, she was over it. She posted a help wanted ad in the Norwegian newspaper of Chicago, and pretty soon, 30-year-old Norwegian immigrant Olaf Lindbo came a-callin'. He brought with him his life savings of $600, about $18,000 today, and headed for Bell's farm in Laporte. If you like pina coladas, you know. Exactly. Olaf loved the farm, and Belle was so super nice to him that some people around town started to assume he was her fiancé. Olaf even wrote to his dad to say how much he loved it there and how he might be getting married soon. He started to see himself as master of the farm, and it just seems like he figured he'd lucked into this amazing life as a farm owner. But then... Olaf just suddenly decided to go to St. Louis to see the World's Fair and buy some land there, which is what Belle told her neighbor, Chris Christofferson. Or was it that he went back to Norway to see the new king crowned, as she told Olaf's friend Swan Nicholson? Or maybe Olaf went out west and took up a homestead someplace, as she wrote to Olaf's father when he sent her a worried letter. Okay, I'm going to need a whole other sticky note. Okay, you're going to need... Many, 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 many sticky notes. The truth was, Olaf Lindbo never left the farm, and his remains <sighs> wouldn't be found for another four years. Oh, my God. Then came Henry Gerholt, who came into town not long after Olaf disappeared, saying he'd come to work for Mrs. Guinness. Mrs. Oh, my Guinness. God, that's it? That's all the time Olaf gets? That's it? Dude, I got like 20 people to get through. Do you want me to go on about oh old Olaf? Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm telling you, you should just give up on the sticky notes now. Olaf is done. Then came Henry Gerholt, who came into town not long after Olaf disappeared, saying he'd come to work for Mrs. Gunnis. Like Olaf, Henry loved the farm. He wrote to his mother about how beautiful it was and how happy he was there. But soon, Belle was out telling people that Henry had gotten sick and he'd quit, which was really weird because he'd left all his stuff including this fancy fur coat behind. But not one to waste a good fur. Belle was seen around town wearing it. Okay, but now she's not even married to these people, so there's no, like, life insurance, nothing. No, they're bringing money and giving now it to her. Now it's just money, uh-huh. and then, yeah, but, like, uh-huh. God. Yeah, and Olaf like, only had $600. She got 600 bucks, $18,000 for him. And old-timey money, though, yeah. I mean, $18,000 okay. in today's money, $600 in old-timey oh. money. Yeah. $600. Yeah. The summer after Henry disappeared, Bell put another classified ad in the paper. This is the personal ad I read at the beginning. Triflers need not apply. 
Yeah. She started getting anywhere from one to four responses a day to her ad. And the first to reply was a middle-aged Norwegian immigrant named George Barry. He told everyone he was moving to Laporte for a job and possibly a marriage. He brought with him $1,500 in cash, about forty. Okay, grand. but is Belle low-key going viral in the 1800s? Yeah, basically. Like four responses a day? Mm-hmm. One That's to four viral. every day. I agree. Then there was Emil Tell, who quit his job after telling his boss he was going to marry a rich widow and headed off to Laporte with $2,000. Then Ol' Buzzberg that we talked about at the top, he sold his farm to his sons and headed to Laporte. 40-year-old John Moe cashed $1,000 in checks at a bank and told the teller he was going to Laporte, Indiana, and that's just a fraction of them. Men started showing up at her house every week, and she'd introduce them to her farmhand that she had as her cousin's. But they wouldn't stay long, and every single one of them left their trunks behind. One room was just stacked full with 15 trunks and men's clothes. She told the farmhand that all of her cousins had just left their clothes, and she didn't think they'd be back for them. Um, And he was just like, okay, cool, whatever. I don't even have 15 cousins. This is wild. (laughs) Yeah. And they're all coming to visit, but at different times. They don't want a full family reunion, you know. They want to space I mean, like, it out a little bit. I didn't even know there was that many people in LaPorte, Indiana, like today. No, there's not. Yeah. They're coming from all over. She put these ads, these right, classified but ads like, in Chicago, in right, like whatever. But they're not leaving, you know. <laughs> they there. They there. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Bell then hired a local man named William Brigiski to dig holes that were six feet long, three feet wide, and four feet deep. For what? She said that it was for her trash. <laughs> she did not refer to them as such. No, ma'am. No. 
I want to. I want to just go get one cocktail with her. Yes, and make it out alive. And like, yeah, my trash triflers need not apply. <laughs> So in 1906, Jenny Gunnis was 16, and she was blonde and beautiful and had the guys in town just falling over themselves for her. But Belle told Jenny that she wanted her to go to college in Los Angeles and that she was going to make all the arrangements for her to go. She'd even arranged for a professor to come by to escort her to L.A. Jenny was really sad to leave, and she told all the boys about leaving to go to L.A., and they were all crestfallen at the news that Jenny was leaving. And several stopped by the farm at different times to say goodbye, only to find out from Belle that Jenny had already left a few days before. (gasps) They were so confused. The farmhand hadn't even seen the professor come in to take her. Several of them tried to keep in touch with Jenny in L.A., but nobody ever Mm. heard from her again. Not sweet, Jenny. Why, Why is she doing this to her kids? This is the one I really don't understand. I mean... The men, obviously the money. College. But Jenny, like, I wonder if she had life insurance on her or something, or if maybe she'd caught on to what Belle was doing at the farm. Mm. Those are the only two things I can think about, about why she would kill Jenny, because I don't get it. Because honestly, she was so pretty, she probably could have had a really good marriage, and then Belle could have, like, you know, gotten some of that money. And, like... Not to unpack this or we'll be here all night, like whatever that mother-daughter relationship is. Right. But like they're not like cool, right? They're not like, help me get ready for the dance and let's stay up all night and let me tell you about my boy problems, mom. Yeah. Like, right. I, I mean they're not don't close. think they had that relationship, no. Yeah. So I wonder why Ginny's even like around her mom at all. Well, they she so lives there. I don't even know it's her mom. But like at this age, can't she be out of there? 16? I don't know. I mean, maybe she could have gotten married and left. <sighs> I don't know. It doesn't... Jenny also lied through her teeth about for her, so maybe she had some sense of loyalty to her. I don't know. Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm scratching Jenny out. Yeah, scratch her out. That's sad. So I got Myrtle, Lucy, and Philip. Yep, that's who's left. The farmhand didn't want to stay on after Jenny left, so he quit, and on came a man named Ray Lampier. I think it's Lampier. It might be Lampier, but we're going with Lampier. Some people say Belle had her eye on him for a while and just offered him the job. Others say he heard about the job through the local carpenters union and met up with Belle for an interview, and she hired him on the spot. But either way, by early July 1907, Ray was living at the farm and bragging to all his drinking buddies that he and Belle were doing the horizontal tango. Uh, Is that a direct quote? That's a direct quote from the book. No, that is that is a you that is my uh, paraphrasing for you. Okay, well, Ray wasn't the only employee Bell was hooking up with. There had been this guy Peter Coulson who worked for her for two years, and he said she'd come to his room at night and quote make love to him with sweet words and caresses. He said she purred like a cat. And was soft and gentle in her way. This lady looked like the Trunchbull <laughs> from Matilda. But okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, Peter. <laughs> Belle had also been keeping up a correspondence with this guy, Andrew Helgeline, who had seen an ad of hers in the Minneapolis paper. She spent a whole year and a half writing letters back and forth with him, trying to get him out to her murder farm. 
but he wasn't as eager as all those other guys before him. Yeah, long distance. Yeah. This was no gullible guy. Andrew had spent 10 years in prison for robbing a post office and then burning the building down. But she wore him down. Belle lied to him and told him she had 74 acres, which which was twice what she actually had. And she asked him how much cash he had to invest. Their letters turned from business to love letters, and Belle begged him not to tell anyone of his plans of coming to Laporte, especially his family. She told him to sell anything he could get cash for and to bring anything else with him to the farm. But definitely don't leave money or stocks down there, you silly boy. One letter to Andrew shows what a cunning, manipulative psychopath Belle Gunnis was. It read, I know now that you are a man with knowledge of many things and have seen how smooth and evil so many people are and how much fraud and tricks they are up to and would take all one had and do not want to work but live on others and do not care what evil people what evil they do. My friend, just keep away from such people. Uh, yourself? Exactly. Meanwhile, Ray Lampier had been going around town telling everyone that he was going to marry Belle. But when Andrew showed up, she told Ray she was giving his room to Andrew and Ray could go sleep in the barn. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Thank you, next. Belle took Andrew to the bank to cash some certificates of deposit for nearly $3,000, almost $75,000 in today's money. But the bank said it would take like five days and Belle was super annoyed about this. When it finally (laughs) did come in, Belle insisted they get it all in cash and told the guy at the bank to mind his own business when he asked Andrew what he was going to do with all the money. Oh my God, Belle, sorry this free money isn't fast enough for you. (laughs) Right, I got this guy to kill. Can you hurry it up, please? Yeah. What's What's the tally count so far? We don't know, really. Just like she's at least killed 10 people children and baby daddies i like she's killed i would say we're probably going on 14 17 18 by now okay at least the true number can't really be told but we'll get into that meanwhile andrew's brother isle and i'm calling him isle it's a s l e it's a norwegian name i'm i I think it's isle anyways if she's mispronouncing it everyone slide in her dms Yes, please tell me it's not asshole, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So Andrew's brother Isles worried sick about Andrew, who hadn't told him where he was going, only that he'd be back in a week or so. But 10 days had gone by, and there was no sign of Andrew. Then Andrew's farmhand, John, showed up at Isles with a stack of letters he found in Andrew's cabin, all signed by Belle Gunnis. Isle Helgeline wrote to Bell, asking where his brother was. And of course, Bell played dumb, telling him that Andrew had left to try to find his long lost brother. She said he'd stopped off briefly in Laporte and then gone off to Chicago and New York. She said he'd written her from Chicago. And that was the last she'd heard from him. He asked to see the letter, and she told him that her ex-handyman slash ex-leva, Ray Lampier, had stolen the letter. Oh, she... uh I can't believe she's keeping, like, I don't know. It's just funny that she would, like, even respond. Yeah. I guess to keep him from coming there. I guess. she doesn't seem to, like, really seem scared. Like, it seems like she would knock him over the head, too, and then. 
You know what I mean? Like, she just seems so... <laughs> That's true. I'm surprised she didn't lure him there. Like, yeah, oh, he's here. He says he needs money. Bring what you got. Right. Yeah. I'm honestly surprised. Mm-hmm. Dig more six by three lots, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> On February 3rd, 1908, so just before Isle wrote to Belle, Ray had parted ways with Belle. Some say that she <gasps> fired him. Some say that he quit because she hadn't paid him. But he'd left so fast that he left his clothes and tools behind. And less than a week later, he, he was replaced by a new guy. Did he actually leave? Did he get out? Yeah, he's alive. <gasps> Ray went to an attorney who told him to go back to the farm and tell Belle to give him his stuff back or he'd sue her. Nope. But not one to be Don't scared off by a mere man. Belle drove <laughs> Ray from her property and wrote to the local sheriff to tell him that she was being harassed by Ray. A month later, she had Ray arrested for trespassing. You know what, though? You go, Ray Coco. Four for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like. I know. Get out. In March, Belle filed an affidavit saying that Ray Lampier was insane and that he told her things that she knew were not true. She said he came to her house every night and would look in the windows. But after an investigation was conducted, they determined that Ray was not insane And probably super pissed that she hadn't gotten him declared insane, she instead got him arrested again for trespassing. Okay, that's like the least creepy thing that anyone's done in this episode. I know. She would have him arrested several more times for trespassing, and he would have at least two trials over it. At one of the trials, the defense attorney actually starts going after Belle, trying to undercut her credibility and asks <laughs> all about her ex-husbands who both died and how she got the life insurance. And, oh, just where is your daughter, Jenny Olson? When is she supposed to come back from L.A.? So it seems like there were plenty of people around that suspected Belle of, at the very least, murdering her two husbands. But nobody did anything about it. It was like people just continuously looked the other way. Yeah. Another woman testified at Ray's trial. She worked at a store on Main Street where Belle was a regular. And she said that at the end of April, Belle came into the store looking very distressed and told her all about Ray's harassment and said that she feared he would someday set fire to her home and buildings and that he would murder her and her children. Girl, please. Yeah. I know. Like, he don't care that much about you, actually. I love how she lists that she's scared of everything she's literally done to other people. Right. On Monday, April 27th, 1908, two of Belle's kids, little Myrtle and Lucy Gunnis, went to school yes. crying. They told their teachers their mother had given them a terrible beating that morning because they had started playing by the cellar of their home, and they'd gotten all the way to the bottom of the stairway to the cellar before Belle dragged them back up the stairs and beat them. She told them to keep out of the cellar. Because they were getting close. uh Uh-huh. And not to poke their faces where they were not wanted. I can't believe these kids were going to school. Like, I forgot that was like a whole other thing that they would be doing. I know. Like, she's, like, sending them to school. Like, getting them ready for school. That's weird to me. Yeah, I agree. I know. I know. I always wonder, like, apart from the, like, murdering babies thing that she had, like, what kind of mother was she to the kids that were alive? Was she, like, super aloof and, like, not nurturing and not caring about them at all? Or was she, like, delusional and, like, super motherly and super caring, but then had this whole other side of her that was, like, you know, slashing people? Like, I don't know. I think it's, like, somewhere in between. Yeah. Like, I don't think she's super loving, but was she, like, 
sending them to school and like sending them with a lunch and like asking about their homework, but then not doing anything else even like that still seems wild to me. Yeah, I don't know. But that was Myrtle and Lucy, right? Mm-hmm. But we know Myrtle dies. And then there's Philip. Like, mm-hmm. did he leave? He's still there? Yeah, Philip's oh still God. there. Mm-hmm. Sometime that day, Belle went to her lawyer's office to tell him how scared she was that Ray was going to burn the house down. Then Belle stopped at the bank, updated her will, stopped off at the general store, and bought two gallons of kerosene. It's funny that they know that, like they have receipt records from that. I know. It's really interesting. That night, she, the children, and the new farmhand, Joe Maxson, sat down to a dinner of beef, salmon, beefsteak, potatoes, bread and butter. Oh. And, I know. A whole feast. And then played I didn't know a we bunch were at of, Caesar's Palace. Right. And then over here. played a bunch of different games. Joe Maxson went to bed early that night, but he woke up to the smell of burning, and his room was mm. full of smoke. The whole oh house was on fire. She was playing games? Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't... I kind of feel I like she know. wanted I, to give I, them all, like, one last good night before. Why? Like, who is this woman? I know. Who is this woman? I know. I, maybe she thought she was, like, doing them a kindness. Like, I'm going to kill you all later, but for now... Well, did she do that for the 20 others, you know? I think so, because I think she poisoned them with, like, a really nice meal. That's something. I. <laughs> it's something. This is going to keep me up at night in terms of like trying to figure out. She's like an enigma. Her like Who psyche. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go into we'll go into that a little bit at the end. He pounded on the door that separated his room from like the main part of the house, and he tried yelling fire, but he could barely breathe. He ran out of the house and he saw the roof right over his bedroom collapse just minutes after he made it out. He tried to get into the house with an axe to get to Belle and the kids, but the fire was too much. At this point, several neighbors had noticed the blaze and came to try and help. They threw bricks at the upstairs window where Belle and the kids slept, but there was no response. They grabbed a ladder and they climbed up and they tried to like see in the bedrooms, but all they saw were empty mattresses, no bodies in the beds. They were not sleeping there. They thought about going into the bedrooms, but they could see the fire coming in from the door and they were too afraid to risk it. There was nothing any of them could do except stand there and watch it burn. The fire raged for nearly two hours. By the time the flames died down enough that they could start putting out the fire with pails of water, the house was barely still standing. One wall was gone completely, and only parts of the other three walls remained. Hundreds of spectators began to show up, and rumors began to spread that Belle had set the fire herself. Well, no shit. But the sh- Everybody. <laughs> but the sheriff knew about Belle's ongoing feud with Ray Lampier, and he was his main suspect. The sheriff immediately sent deputies to track Ray down, but they couldn't find him. It was like he'd disappeared. Oh, did he? (laughs) Meanwhile, firemen and other volunteers began searching through the rubble for the four bodies known to be in the house. Belle and her three kids, Philip, Myrtle, and Lucy. They tore down what was left of the three walls for safety until all that was left was the cellar. They went through every piece of rubble and even started to think the bodies weren't there. But they were there. 
Finally, around 3.45 that afternoon, they found four bodies all piled up together. They were all burned beyond recognition, but Bell's was the worst. Her body was described as an unrecognizable mass with the bones protruding through naked flesh. Ew, ew. But the worst part was that her body had no head. Wait, what? No head on that body. On her body. On her body. They figured that she'd been decapitated by the fire, but they couldn't find the skull. I don't know how that works. Decapitated by the fire. I don't either. I don't think that's really a thing. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to think about that anymore. Ray was found, not disappeared after all, but working at a farm down the road. So I don't know if they just didn't look very hard or what. Yeah, like. (laughs) (laughs) The first words out of his mouth were, did those three children and the woman get out of the building? I love how you didn't refer to them by name. That seems weird. Yeah, and the woman. Ray said he'd seen the fire that morning while on a six-mile hike, but he hadn't told anyone because he didn't think it was his business, which the sheriff thought was very suspicious. And he was... I mean, you know what? Honestly... I wouldn't be poking my head around there either. No, not when she's been going around town telling everybody, Ray Lampier's going to burn down my house. Yeah. I don't know, though. Maybe if I did see it burning down, I'd be like, I'd go find me an alibi real fast. Yeah. They grilled him and his story stayed the same each time, except for one thing. He now said he hadn't told anyone about the fire because he thought he'd be blamed. He also finally admitted to his alibi. He'd been shacked up that night with a black woman named Elizabeth Smart. Smith. Elizabeth Smith. (laughs) Different. She was said to have been very beautiful. The most beautiful black woman in Indiana, according to some. But at 70 years old, the years had really taken their toll on her. And I say this only to include a quote from the book, which is my favorite thing I've ever read. Oh, no. Her advanced age and physical deficiencies appeared to make no difference to Ray Lampier, a man evidently blessed with highly flexible standards of female beauty. <laughs> <laughs> Cast out by his nearly 300-pound lover, Belle Gunnis, he had found comfort in the bed of the spindle-shanked Elizabeth Smith. <laughs> what? is even happening (laughs) oh my god that was from the book (laughs) i can't wait till like one of my friends is dating someone that i just don't approve of and like need to find a way to like tell her i could just say oh i see that your standards are a lot more flexible now (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know yeah Uh, highly flexible standards Smith confirmed his alibi, saying that he'd been at her house until four that morning after the fire had started. But everyone still thought he was guilty. Newspapers called him a maniac, a homicidal firebug, and rumors spread that a mob would get Ray and retaliate. Ray was charged with the homicides and pleaded not guilty. Back at the farm, volunteers were still working hard to find Belle's skull. And when they couldn't find it, it was believed that Ray had gone in decapitated her and then set the fire to conceal the crime i'm just not convinced that ray like cares that much no i don't think ray cares that much at all i think she built up a lot of rumors around town 
that he did care that much. She had him arrested for trespassing all those times when he probably wasn't. She told everybody that he was she was afraid he was going to start a fire, that he'd been threatening to start set her house on fire. And then, oops, what do you know? Her house is set on fire. Like, who are you going to call? Right. Well, I also think, too, like, I don't think he cared that much. I mean, I think he cared when he found out she was gone. I think that was he was probably very happy about that. Right. But yeah, like he's not. I think he just moved on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting that he was right down the road and he's like the only one that she seemed to not kill. kill. Yeah. Right. Weird. People seem to think that Ray really didn't have anything to do with anything. He didn't know what was going on there. He didn't have anything to do with what was going on there. But it would kind of make sense that if she had a partner in crime that she wouldn't kill him, you know, but maybe they had some sort of falling out and she wants him to go. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But then that's when you definitely do. Kill that's them. when you definitely do kill them. I know. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Several people came to Laporte soon after the fire. Bell's sister Nellie came out. Jenny Olson's biological sister, who hadn't heard from Jenny since she wrote saying she was going to California, she came out. Mm. And Andrew Helgeline's brother, Isle, came out when he heard of the fire. So Isle goes to the farm. He starts looking through the rubble. He's hoping for a clue to his brother's whereabouts. And he nearly gives up. This guy's still holding on to hope. Well, I think he knew something terrible had happened to him, and I think he came for answers because... He almost gave up when an idea suddenly struck him, and he asked Joe Maxson, the farmhand, if there were any holes or dirt that had been dug up around spring when Andrew had come to the farm. And Joe said, as a matter of fact, there was. So I think Isle knew exactly what happened to his brother. He just wanted to prove it. You know, he wanted the answers. Right. So Joe shows him where the hole was, and all they found was trash. They start digging, and they just find trash. You know, these were her trash pits, her rubbish pits. But they kept digging trash. and they kept digging. And below all the trash, oh, no. they spotted a human neck. And the sheriff arrived just then and they finished digging yes. to unearth a human body who had clearly fought for his life. He showed a lot of defensive <gasps> wounds and it was the body of Andrew Helgeline. Mm. The sheriff asked if Joe knew of any other places where holes had been dug. Somebody needs to go find that guy that dug all those holes, you know, that she hired. Yeah, like... <laughs> Maybe she, like, pushed him in the last one. Maybe so. But Joe came, showed him another spot in the hog pen. They dug, again finding heaps of trash, but below the trash they found four bodies. Two men, one woman, <gasps> and one adolescent girl. Woman? Mm-hmm. Each had been cut up into six pieces. Oh, God. Woof. I know. The adolescent girl was identified by her long blonde hair as Jenny Olson. She was discovered on May 5th, 1908, which was would have been her 18th birthday. Yeah, you're right. I, I wrote down this script, obviously. I know a woman was found, but I, like, forgot about that because I kept thinking, like, yeah, she never killed women. Like, she was just killing men and children. But yeah. I don't know who this woman is. I have no idea. Yeah. Women and children and men. But that wasn't the end of the discoveries. The next day, five more bodies were discovered, bringing the total so far to nine. To, I guess that would be ten because there was the four and the five and, the, and Andrew. So bringing the total to yeah. ten. The media went wild. Newspapers all across the country picked up the story and began to tell of Bell's House of Horrors. 
That sounds accurate. Yeah. They talked about a room at the Gunnis home that no one was allowed to enter. The one the kids had been beaten for when they got too close to the door. Mm-hmm. What's in there? The newspapers said that Bell piled the bodies in there until there was no danger of them bleeding anymore and then hacked them into pieces. Ew. I know. But a doctor that examined the bodies said that whoever cut up the bodies had knowledge of anatomy. The way they were cut showed it could not have been like an amateur with an ordinary instrument. It had to have been something as sharp as a surgeon's knife. And that meant she must have had accomplices in Chicago. But his theory was waved off pretty early. The sheriff knew Bell was hunting single men and widowers with money, luring them to the farm, killing them and taking their money. They really didn't think she had these accomplices. Ole Busberg, the one that we talked about at the very beginning, his two sons had been very worried about him. They'd written to Bell, but their letters were returned undeliverable. One source said that Bell had written back saying she'd never seen their father. Like ever at like, all. Yeah, one article said that, but the book, I think, said that they were returned undeliverable, so I'm not sure. They were taken by deputies to the farm to identify the skull of their father, and after viewing it, they had no doubt they'd finally found their dad. Wait, it was just a skull? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know that I could identify someone's skull. Um, I think it still had like hair and stuff on it, and I think that's Ooh. like. I mean, And now you know that. <laughs> and I can't unknow and it. And you can't unknow it. Do you sometimes just tell me things so that you don't have to be the only one to know the thing? Yes, sometimes, absolutely. Oh. That I literally, I didn't think it would bother you so much. Like I. I really thought you wanted to know how they identified the skull, but Uh sorry. The postmortems of the bodies suggested a certain scenario for all the killings. She would poison them with a home-cooked meal and then use a cleaver or a hatchet to their skulls. She would drag their bodies into her cellar, remove the heads and the limbs, put all the pieces into sacks, haul them out to her hog lot, dump them in a hole, and then she would add quicklime to speed up the decomposition. I am, like, really shook by this story, like, not in a scared way, but, like, that this woman killed so many people, like, just, like, one after another after another, and, like, no one's caught on. Even, like, well, it doesn't even, it's not even, like, no one's caught on. I don't even feel like people are inquiring, really. Right. It's almost like like nobody gave a shit. Where are all these babies coming from? And, I don't know, like, like... I'm sure living on yeah. a farm and not, like, in a city with, like, I don't know if they're going to, like, church on Sundays. Okay, but it's, like, in a city, don't you think it's a little easier to blend into the crowd than Yeah, I guess in... I just don't know what, like, farm life in the early 1900s is. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't either. Newspapers branded her as the most fiendish murderer in history, and people showed up in droves to this farm. Hotels were selling out of rooms. And on Sunday, May 10th, somewhere between 16,000 and 20,000 people descended on the farm to check it out. Trains were charging extra to take people out there. Once they arrived at the station, there would be tour guides waiting to show them around. A lot of the families thought it was such a beautiful day. They brought a picnic lunch. That is the most action LaPorte, Indiana (laughs) has ever seen. And second, like, I'm I'm appalled. (laughs) It's like like they're at the the county fair. Yeah. 
Oh, my God. I mean, I can't blame them. I would definitely have gone, but. Yeah, I mean, yes. I know it's not a good look have, for people. Not like a family trip. You're at least going as like a single individual. You're not taking your kids out there. I would not take kids out there. And I don't think I'd be able to find a friend to go with me either. So Leslie might go with me. Leslie, would you go with me to the murder farm <laughs> if we were in 1908 in <laughs> I'm glad that you just already know that that would be a hard no for me. Not even asking you. Leslie would go. Authorities are continuing to look for Belle's skull. They're going as far as to sift through the rubble, hoping to find a few of the gold teeth that she had. I don't know why they care so much. Well, because it's begging the question. Is this even really Bell Gunnis? Mm. Or was Bell Gunnis still alive? <gasps> she better not be. So a manhunt began, searching everywhere for Bell, but she was never found. There were so many sightings of her that it became a joke, with newspapers printing that any large woman should just stay at home in case she is suspected of being Bell Gunnis, because it happened so many times. And the bodies continued to be uncovered at the farm. The number of victims of Bells can never be known exactly. I've seen numbers between 28 and 40. But one newspaper estimated that she'd made over $1.2 million in today's money, which doesn't feel like enough. Between yeah. the insurance payouts and the money that she stole from the men that she killed, that's not even counting the money she got from those poor moms paying her to take care of their babies, if that's what really what was really she, going on. What she should have done is taken all those trunks of clothes and put them on thread up from all those men, and she could have been making money. In 1908. Yes, 1908. Yeah, okay. well, I'm sure they had something similar. Yeah, maybe so. She held the Guinness World Record for greatest number of murders ever ascribed to a murderess. But I really hope that's not a thing anymore. Like, I hope no one's out there trying to, like, beat the record for, like, most murders. Well, they are now that you told everybody. I don't think it's a secret. I've, I don't think our listeners are the murdering type. They're pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's what people said about Ted Bundy, too. And then look. Mm, I don't think anybody called him pretty cool, but maybe. One man came forward to tell his story of a close call he'd been lured to the farm by one of bell's mm. ads like so many other men he was put up in the same room as the others because they all stayed in the same room like she had this room for Ew. them yeah on his first night he woke up in the middle of the night just feeling something strange hovering over him to find bell standing over his bed speaking she, from experience that is mm -hmm. terrifying yes she ran out of the room and it freaked the guy out so bad that he stayed awake for the rest of the night and left as soon as the sun came up. And he's convinced that Belle is still alive and that if he hadn't woken up when he did, that he would not be. The New York Times front page offered four theories surrounding Belle Gunnis. Theory number one, that she feared exposure of her long murderous career so she killed her three kids and herself, set fire to the house to conceal the crimes. No. Theory number mm -mm. two, that Belle feared exposure. So she fled after killing her children, putting the headless body of another woman in the house to mislead authorities. Yes. Yes. Theory number three, that Ray Lampier, the farmhand, did the killing from a double motive of revenge and jealousy. No. no. Theory four, 
that the quadruple crime was committed by a murderous gang with headquarters in Chicago who feared exposure by Bell of a long series of murders for insurance. I'm sorry. They just wanted an even number or what? Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah. Most people, including the mayor and the police chief of Chicago, were going with theory number two, that Bell had killed the three kids and staged her death to escape punishment. Especially since they were all found, like, huddled together in one room of the house. And I don't believe for a second that Ray lit the fire. Belle definitely lit the fire. I don't think she'd kill herself anyway. And, yeah, I don't think her head would just decapitate itself. But I don't know anything about fire. So maybe, I don't know. Anyways, the sheriff and the prosecutor were really trying to build a case against Ray Lampierre. So they were insisting that Belle had died in the fire. And then the results from the medical examiner came back. The body supposed to be Bell Gunnis was estimated to be about 5'2 and weigh 130 pounds. But Bell was 5'7 and closer to 300 pounds. Like, there's just no way that that body was hers. Yeah, that's like two of them. Right. I don't believe it. But the sheriff wasn't giving up. For whatever reason, he was intent on charging Ray with this crime. His guys worked hard. And I'm like, you haven't changed your mind since uncovering 20 bodies? Yeah. Like, Like you had Ray that night when Belle and the kids were these innocent victims that he had killed. But now you see that she's actually this crazy murderer that's gone on this crazy murder spree. And you that hasn't, like, made you rethink Ray's guilt yeah, like, those things are, like, in, they are together. Like, right. I just my don't, words, but you know what I mean. Right. I don't get why he was so intent on this. And you'll see how intent he was. So his guys worked hard, sifting through the rubble, looking for those gold teeth of Bell's, and they finally got something. They found a pair of upper and lower dental bridges that the dentist confirmed were that of Bell Gunnis's. How her skull managed to perish in the fire but leave her false teeth so unharmed was anyone's guess. But it was enough to bring arson and first-degree murder charges against Ray Lampier. Wait, he, was it only her false teeth, teeth were Yeah, found? it was just these bridges, dental oh, bridges. Oh, the things that she could just take out? That seems convenient. <laughs> exactly. Ray? No, I think they're attached to your teeth. I mean, they are. I don't like, think. I, yeah, you, I don't think they're like dentures where you can like. No, they're attached. I mean, you would have to like use some hardware to get them out, but it's not like pulling your real teeth. Like, there's not going to be all this like blood. Like, okay, that's or, interesting to know. But that's also not even what I think happened. But I'll tell you. But that might have been like she left it herself. Like she's like. But they were in such good shape that I don't. I don't think those teeth were in that fire. I don't. Mm. And I'll tell you why. Because his trial was really interesting. Ray's trial. He was insisting he didn't set the fire. He said he worked for Belle, but he never saw her kill anybody. And he didn't know she killed anybody. I cannot believe he's on on trial. That makes me so angry. But his trial's really interesting. The main defense in the trial was that it was not Belle's body in the fire. Because then they could say that Belle set the fire herself, right? Mm -hmm. So Ray's attorney showed evidence that contradicted the dentist's identification of the teeth and the bridge work. And they even did this, like, insane experiment with an actual human jawbone. They attached similar bridge work to it and burned it until the bone could be so easily crushed that you wouldn't find the skull, you know? Because, like, there's no skull with this bridge work. I'm surprised this is all happening 
in this early. I mean, I, I guess it's not that, but like 1900s, like I didn't realize I they were doing all this in a trial. I know. I thought it was really interesting too. The teeth totally crumbled in this experiment and the bridge work showed a ton of damage. Oh. Also, Joe Maxson, Bell's farmhand, he yes. testified that he saw this guy Schultz, the guy who actually found the teeth in the rubble. Mm-hmm. He saw him pull the bridge work out of his pocket before finding it in the rubble. And this was corroborated by another witness as well. And I think that's what happened. I think they planted that there because they wanted to put Ray in jail for some reason. So on November 26, 1908, Ray was found guilty of arson and sentenced to two to 21 years in prison. He was acquitted of the murder charges, though, which doesn't make any sense to me. Like, Yeah, those things, again, are related. Right. Like, if he didn't murder them in a fire, then he didn't start the fire. He didn't start the right. fire. Right. Or are you saying that he didn't set fire to a house in the middle of the night where he knew all those people were sleeping with the intent to kill them? He just wanted to set the house on yeah. fire and oopsie, they all died. I mean, is that that's obviously oh, not what you think. Ray. Like he does not care. I know. Many experts Ow. weighed in on what drove Bell. Most assumed that it was greed, but one unnamed specialist said he didn't think so. He saw Belle as a maniac and said it wasn't money that drove her, but the constantly growing appetite for blood. And he said one distinguishing feature of these criminals was that they used the same method in every case. With Belle, she decapitated every one of her victims. She severed limbs. Always there was the maximum of mutilation. He compared her to Jack the Ripper. The book points out that this guy had just identified her as a serial killer long before the word for serial killer even existed. Yeah. When did that word come about? In the 70s, during the creation of the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI, um, this guy, uh, Robert Ressler, in the Mm. 70s, coined the term serial killer. I really only know that because um, of a show that you've never heard of or watched what is it? Mind Hunter. Uh, I've definitely seen that. Oh, then you know who coined the term serial killer. They no, go into I'm it just the first. I've ep- never seen oh. that, but I wanted you to feel bad. And that is the story of Belle Trifler's Need Not Apply Gunnis and her murder farm. What'd you think of all that? I don't love the term murder farm. Mm. But it's like quite succinct. I mean, that's what it was. It was a yeah. murder farm. And I am, like, so angry about it. I'm so angry about it. I have something to tell you. Is this about chowder? Yes. Drum roll, please. <gasps> Chowder's DNA be- results came back. Chowder's DNA. And I am the father. So a couple weeks ago, let's remind remind everybody. I think it was on the Collar Bomb Part 2 episode. We yes. talked about how you sent away for your dog's DNA test. We had a poll going on Instagram about what we thought it would be. My guess was for sure, and I am positive I'm right, Okay, Chow Chow and Golden Retriever. Uh, it's yeah, obvious. Same. That was my guess too. Okay. Okay. Golden Retriever. I mean, have you Googled Golden Retriever Chow Chow Mix? Yes. Have you like done that? Yeah. And I'm like, Isn't that's that shower. I know. Do you remember how nervous I was too about him not being in a chow? Yes. And I was okay. like, please. No, he's definitely part chow. 
I know. And part of me was like, he has to. I know because of the tongue. And as I tell you this, keep in mind, because I had to go through this. It's science. You can't. It's DNA. You can't. Okay. Are you ready? I'm going to go from the highest percentage. Okay. Uh, it's Okay. So the highest percentage, I think the highest percentage is golden and then chow. I think he's more golden than he is chow. Okay. okay. 23% mm-hmm. boxer. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I like, boxer? Yes. Come for Russell because he was the one that swapped his mouth. I literally looked at Russell and was like, did you swap his cheek right? Like, <laughs> What did you swap the boxer next door first and yeah. then come for Chow Chow? A boxer. I There's mean, no I've, way. There's no way he's a boxer. No way. Twenty three percent boxer, he which is I anything like a boxer. And, and that's the believe, highest twenty. So he's yeah, a full 20, on mutt. If yeah, twenty three percent is the highest. Twenty three percent boxer. Sixteen point seven percent Chow Chow. Okay. Which okay my oh, okay. little. Mama Heart has never been more happy. Okay, good. Excellent. We can continue to call him Chowder. That's perfect. 14.3% golden. Beagle. No, gold. What? No, what? Beagle. 14.3% Beagle. Disagree, sir. Beagle? This one really threw me. Wait, we're Ten? still not at golden? Is golden no. on this list? Hold your horses. Okay. 10.3% Doberman Pincher. I'm sorry. What? No. Have you seen my dog? No. Have you seen my dog? Yes. I was like, I have. did you drop the swab on the floor <laughs> outside <laughs> and then mail it off? He does not look anything like a boxer, beagle, or Doberman. Mm-mm. 10.3% cocker spaniel. I'm like, okay, maybe that's the reddish coat, the like crinkly ear hairs. I don't okay. know. Okay, I can I don't maybe really... see crinkly air, ear hairs. Maybe. Sure. Yep. <laughs> okay. 9.9% Australian Shepherd. Oh, that's what makes him so wonderful. Australians are yeah. the best. I, I can really see a little golden maybe retriever a little would make Aussie. him wonderful. Okay, mm-hmm. but that's why. Okay. If he's not golden retriever, his color comes from somewhere else. Cocker and that Spaniel. face, I think, comes from the Australian Shepherd. The shape face. Okay. German Shepherd. Mm, Okay. I don't know how I feel about that. 10% super mutt. Yeah. (laughs) And it says a super mutt. So super mutt's like a classification they use where if there's like a bunch of little like point whatever shows up. Uh And my super mutt is comprised of St. Bernard, Labrador Retriever, Golden Retriever. Oh, a but, golden is in there. But I mean, golden? like, not even its own bar. Don't care. Golden Retriever's in there. Golden He's chow. part chow, part golden. I was right. I mean, that's a stretch, but <laughs> that's a stretch. I'm taking that we were right. 100% that bitch, though. And thanks so much for listening, peeps and creeps. We'd love to hear from all of you. So find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Not on TikTok yet, much to <laughs> Kristen's disappointment, I'm sure. Um, and you can find us on all of those at Creepers Pod. You can also email us any feedback, case suggestions, anything that you want to send our way. It's creeperspod at gmail.com. 
Also, a big thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts. They really help us out in a huge way. So if you liked this episode and you have an iPhone or you know someone that does, we'd love it if you just take a minute and give us a five-star rating and a review. And we are only two days away. February 6th, two days from now, will be 100 days of True Crime Creepers since we dropped our first episode. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. 100 reviews and ratings and 100 episodes is our goal. So like Kristen said, if you have an iPhone, if you know someone who does, if you're out at a bar... Don't be at a bar. distance with a mask. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you know someone else... If somehow COVID's over the next seven days, two days... Yeah, if COVID's over in the next seven days, you don't have to give me a rating review. <laughs> please, please, we would please love that though. Us. That would be amazing if we could hit a hundred yeah. reviews in a hundred days. That would be so cool. And be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops. When I'll tell Mogab all about the murder of Betty Gore, like Al Gore? No, different oh. Gore family. Texas Story, Texas Monthly. <gasps> Skip. <laughs> No, not Skip. It's before Skip's time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sounds gory. It's pretty good. Bye, peeps and creeps.